All right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, hi, my name is Chip Bishop. I'm the director of student programs here at the Cato Institute. Um, welcome, uh, welcome here to the first of our summer intern series. Um, yeah, welcome those of you who've been here before, those of you who are new, uh, and all those out there watching online. Uh, we stream all our events online, so if you ever can't make it, just click on your computer. Um, welcome to the Cato Institute, the uh, country's largest libertarian think tank. Uh, some people might say that that's like bragging about being the world's tannest redhead, but that's why we're here today, to make the case that libertarianism covers a much broader scope of people's views than is commonly thought. Uh, over the past several years, the word libertarian has become a much more familiar term uh, as an adjective, a political sect, uh, an accusation, and a way of, view of viewing the world. Uh, it's used in newspapers, television, social media, and in general conversations. Um, your average politically inclined person has a basic idea of what libertarianism is now. Uh, and yet, many people are unsure exactly what the term means uh, and what public policies uh, would look like if designed to be libertarian. Uh, so there's a huge gap between the number of people who could be called libertarian and those who would vote or advocate for policies accordingly. Uh, in fact, research by Cato's own David Bowes and David Kirby of the uh, uh, Freedom Works organization explained that while in the mid-2000s, uh, pundits were claiming that uh, the middle ground of po politics were shrinking, uh, the data show otherwise. A 2009 Gallup survey found that 23% held libertarian views, that is, uh, those tending to agree with conservatives on economic issues and with liberals on personal freedom. Uh, a Zogby poll found that 59% consider themselves fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Uh, and 44% agree that they were fiscally conservative and socially liberal, liberal also known as libertarian. Uh, and the emergence of the downsized government touting Tea Party uh, further underlines that. So uh, other data in recent politics show that two-thirds of New Yorkers oppose bans on sugary drinks. Uh, a majority of Wisconsinites favor curbing collective bargaining rights for public unions. And 65% back legalizing and regulating marijuana. Uh, just like uh, tobacco and alcohol. So it's obvious that more and more people uh, and their ideas can be classified as libertarian, but perhaps uh, there are other issues holding them back from self-identifying as such. Uh, so discuss these issues uh, and to challenge you to think if you are really a libertarian or not, whether or not you thought you were coming in here, uh, I welcome you to today's event, uh, 10 Reasons You're Probably a Libertarian. Um, but before I introduce that, I want to give a quick plug to our next event. Uh, if you want to know more about the distinctions uh, libertarianism makes with other mainstream political ideologies, make sure uh, to come back to Cato on Wednesday, July 18th, uh, in the evening at 6.30, uh, when two of our current Cato interns will be debate two interns from the Heritage Foundation on the uh, epic question, uh, libertarianism or conservative, which is the better political philosophy. Uh, it's one of the biggest events of the year, so make sure you go online and register for that and show up. Uh, and now I'll introduce you to today's speaker. Uh, Dr. Tom Palmer is Senior Fellow of the Cato Institute and Director of Cato University, the Institute's educational arm. Uh, he's also the Executive uh, Vice President for International Programs at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, uh, which is responsible for establishing and operating programs in uh, at least 14 languages uh, and other programs worldwide. worldwide. Um, he has a long history of working for liberty organizations uh, and has traveled all over the world. Uh, he is uh, commonly known around the office as the James Bond of Liberty. Um, so he has lots of stories he could tell you at the reception following today's event. Uh, he's published reviews and articles on politics uh, and morality in scholarly journals across the spectrum uh, in, in, on TV and in, in, on radio. Um, and he's uh, authored one book, uh, Realizing Freedom, uh, Libertarian Theory, History, and Practice. Uh, and he has edited two others, uh, The Morality of Capitalism and his most recent, uh, After the Welfare State. A lot of these books and materials are available out in the hall when you leave. Uh, so with that, welcome, Tom, and it's all yours. Thank you, Chip. Uh, one thing I should mention at the beginning, because my colleague reminded me, that these books are available outside. They're not free, but they are zero price. So you don't have to pay anything for them, but uh, people did spend a lot of time and resources putting them together for your enjoyment. I was challenged to come up with 10 reasons, so I'm gonna give you 10, but then explain them. There are actually 11, but I was pushed into only 10, so you'll have to guess what the 11th one is. So let's look then at just a very a quick list. 
of things that you probably already believe. You don't believe that one should go around hitting other people, that we should respect the bodily integrity of other people and not exercise violence against them. You don't believe that people should go around taking stuff from other people, stealing their stuff. You don't believe that you should go around grabbing people, tying them up, and forcing them to do stuff for you, mow your lawn, wash the dishes, uh, and so on. Uh, that's because you're decent, normal people. And you don't believe that in your life you should regularly resort to coercion or force or violence on other people. But we can expand on that a bit and say, uh, sometimes you find, hey, this is Washington, that you disagree with other people, sometimes really strongly, and yet somehow you don't kill them. Even if you disapprove of what other people do because of some deep religious or moral commitment, uh, your neighbors in the house next door may be engaging in sexual behavior voluntarily that you don't approve of, or, or smoking substances of which you disapprove, or reading books you don't like. And yet, I'll bet no one here has ever gone and smashed down the door of those neighbors to barge in and say, stop that, and then put handcuffs on them and drag them out, or even burst in with your guns and shoot them. You probably prefer peace over war. Now that may seem obvious, but there are lots and lots of ideologies, including some that are present in the political spectrum today, that valorize war. It's character building, after all. Indeed, we hear a lot of people in Washington, D.C., talking about the benefits of war. It makes you a real man when you go over and kill other people. But if you do prefer peace, which is in a way a very modern ideology, preferring peace over war and seeing its moral benefits, then it means you're logically inclined to ask, what are the institutions that make peace more likely? And you probably also prefer democratic accountability over dictatorship. I mean, for one thing, it's a probability question. The likelihood that any one of you will be the dictator is pretty small. But there are other reasons as well. I think everybody here probably prefers government that's accountable, a legal system that's predictable, where you understand that you have rights and that there will be due process of law brought to bear against you if someone accuses you or believes that you've committed some kind of a crime. And that means you should be logically inclined to support institutions of democratic accountability, which we know as constitutionally limited government. Finally, I bet people here prefer prosperity and seeing poor people prosper and leave behind their poverty as opposed to valorizing poverty itself. That may seem common sense and obvious to you, but in fact, in much of human history and even today, there are people who praise poverty. Again, it builds character for those who survive past the age of five. No doubt poverty is a real character builder. But if you prefer prosperity, scientific, social, economic advance, it means you should be logically inclined to ask, what are the institutions and processes that make that more likely? Now, here comes one called regulation. And this is something that's very important because I think libertarians have been mischaracterized on this issue and sometimes have participated or acquiesced in that mischaracterization. Do you support regulation? Do you support regulated markets? Some people say, well, no, I favor the free market. But the free market is a regulated market. Regulation comes from to regulate, which means to make regular, to subject to the rule of law. What we have today, when it's called regulation, in almost all cases, is not regulation. It's arbitrary, capricious, and unpredictable interference in relationships that other people had established voluntarily, not the rule of law. But if you favor actually regulated markets, markets where there are principles that are regular and people can understand what they can expect from others, then that means you should look at what makes regular markets possible, and that's the rule of law. And then finally, oops, boy, I missed uh, picking up all, all of these principles. Finally, 
uh, all of you are thinkers. That means you have made decisions to think for yourselves. You don't believe that we should be blindly following anybody else, not the president, not uh, some charismatic leader, not me, not the person sitting next to you, but your own mind that you're going to use to determine how the world works, how you should behave, what is good behavior and what is bad. You don't believe in simply blindly following others. But again, there are many people who do believe that, who promote blind obedience and think that's the proper standard for human beings. So most people govern their lives every day by libertarian principles. These are the principles that parents teach their children. Decent parents, that's 99 point something percent of all the parents out there, teach their little children very difficult lessons. Don't hit other people. That's what parents teach their kids. Don't take their stuff. Don't lie. Keep your promises. Those are pretty good principles to govern your lives. They are fundamentally libertarian principles. They reflect respect for other people. And yet, we can ask, who makes up governments? So is it made up of gods, angels, or maybe even demons? Well, just maybe, government is made up of people, and they're just like us. And if there are moral principles that govern our lives and how we interact with other people, and those are principles to govern the lives of human beings, maybe they should apply to the people in power as well. Maybe government should also be governed by some rules. It's not made up of gods or demons or angels. It's made up of people just like you. Why should there be any different principle for them as opposed to all the rest of us? So what I'm going to offer now is just a very, very quick tour of some libertarian ideas as a case of applying morality and social science to politics, government, and society. I can't answer every problem. <clears throat> I can't solve every issue. I don't expect people to walk away saying, I understand libertarianism top to bo bottom right now. But this is just an attempt to introduce you to some basic themes. Let's go back to that fundamental moral principle, a very radical notion, one that in many ways is characteristic of the modern world and unusual in the ancient world. Now, some of you will be shocked by this idea, but I'll put it up in its darkest form. Other people don't belong to you. No one belongs to me. I'm responsible for my behavior. I have the freedom to determine how I should behave. But other people also have the freedom to determine how they'll make their choices in life. They may err. I may believe that they're making bad choices. But fundamentally, those are their choices to make. Obviously, children are in a lesser condition to make such choices, which is why we have guardians that make choices for children until they grow into the capacity to make their own choices. But after that point, when they reach the age of consent, the age of majority, they get to make their own choices. And obviously there are some people of diminished capacity even once they've reached that age. They may suffer from mental impairment or have other problems that diminish their capacities. And we have guardianship models for them as well. Some adults who uh, suffer from a lack of intellectual development and they need someone to help them with choices. But those are the marginal cases, the difficult ones. We do have principles to govern them. But for all the rest, for the overwhelming majority, adults are responsible for their own lives and they should have the freedom to make those choices for them. Now, what makes you a libertarian? Well, the primacy of liberty as a political goal, but let's be a little careful about that. It doesn't mean liberty is the only goal in life. There are lots of important goals in human life. Love, family, professional accomplishment, achievement, all the different spheres of human activity. But as a political goal, liberty is primary. But not absolute in the sense that some people would like it to be. There's a presumption of liberty. That is to say, a fundamental libertarian principle 
It is presumed that people should have the liberty to do what they want with what is theirs unless there's a good reason to stop them. And there may be. We might have a terrible emergency situation. Some terrible situation like an earthquake that upsets the world. It may be that people get to come stay in my house to avoid dying. Those are the odd cases. And the burden of proof is the one on those who would overcome our normal rights and liberties, not on those who would exercise them. Now that might seem obvious to some people just like the presumption of innocence. People are presumed innocent until and unless they are proven guilty. No one has to prove he or she is innocent in a court of law. That's ingrained in American uh, legal consciousness, but it is not standard around the world. There are many places where the burden is on you to prove you are innocent. And the assumption is you were arrested, therefore, you must show why you should not have been arrested. That even infiltrates American political thought on occasion. I do remember a former attorney general of the United States defending a police behavior, and his response at a news conference was, if they weren't guilty, why did the police arrest them? So it's not that Americans are immune to that kind of thinking. It also can pop up here. But the presumption is you should have the freedom to manage your own life, unless it can be shown it's harmful to other people. So the burden is on those who are limited. Let's think about that uh, for another moment, because in the context of bills of rights, it's also significant. The socialist mentality, when socialists promote bills of rights, they are lists background of authorized coercion by the state. The liberty of culture, the bills of rights, identified in the if you have the freedom to do what you want, there's a notion of rights and freedom to restrict it. And those powers of the state must be clearly enumerated. Rights need not be enumerated, as the Ninth and Tenth Amendments make very, very clear. Now, if you think about the important concept of politics and morality, you can't understand meaning to the others. So let's look at some of these. Name um, them through the ideas of John Locke. 
start with the relationship between law and liberty. Gonzalez, the Cuban boy, who was in the United States, relatives in Florida, and the Cuban government. And I ordered him to take the boy. Uncle said, I'm not going to do it. She said, this is an outrageous violation of the rule of law. The rule of law is not when the Attorney General Her mentality, that's the rule of law. The rule of law is rules. Rules that govern our behavior, not commands, orders, and edicts. The way statists typically conceive of law. Lon Fuller, professor of jurisprudence at Harvard University, put it very neatly. Law is not, as John Austin had defined it, a command of, a, of an authority with the power to enforce obedience. That standard positivistic definition of law. Law is a command. Fuller pointed out in the liberal tradition, understanding liberal in classical sense, law is the enterprise of subjecting human conduct to the governance of rules. So rules are very important to the emergence of liberty. And as Locke pointed out, where there is no law, there's no freedom. Liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law. The liberty to dispose and order as he lists, that is to say as he is inclined, his person's actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. It is the freedom to do what you want with what is yours. And what is yours has to be defined by a set of rules, laws governing property, contract, tort, and a variety of other interactions. Now let's look then at this question of property and its relationship to rights. We often hear people say, in criticism of libertarians, uh, you believe in property rights, not human rights. At its base, it's a very incoherent claim, because no one believes that property, in the sense of this bottle of water, has any rights, obviously. Human beings have rights with regard to objects, like bottles of water or podiums or what have you. But let's look, though, deeper at what property means and the way that John Locke and others use the term. He talks about one's property. That is to say, life, liberty, and estate. Water bottle is a form of estate, as the language was used at the time. So my property governs my life. I have a right to my life. Anyone who tries to take it will be met with the appropriate force and violence. If someone tries to take my life, they're violating my fundamental property in my own life. Or if they try to take my freedom, to restrain me from doing something to which I have a right to worship, or not worship, in what way I choose, be able to manage my own life in a way that does not harm others. That's my freedom, and I have a right to that. And then the way in which I realize my freedom and my purposes in life is through interaction with the state, with Macintosh computers and water bottles and automobiles and houses and all the other things we use to realize our purposes. Now, if we think about this set of rights, though, not any claim of rights will work to generate order in society. Individual rights have to be, to use a technical term from political thought, compossible. They're capable of being exercised concurrently. That means we need to have rights that are well-defined, legally secure. And when we have those, we can generate social order, cooperation, and harmony. So rights aren't just whatever I have a mind to, to claim I have a right that other people provide me with a house. Uh, this got us a little bit into the current financial crisis by guaranteeing anyone could have a house without having to save and so on. 
you need a set of fundamental rights that allow people to cooperate voluntarily. And since we're in the Hayek Auditorium, uh, F.A. Hayek uh, did a great deal of work in understanding spontaneous order and how order can emerge when rights are well-defined, legally secure, and the legal system allows them to be transferred at low cost. Those are very important functions of government or functions of a system of law to help us to define our rights well, to secure them against invasion, and to allow us to transact with those rights. And you will get a spontaneous order when you have that. Now, if we think about libertarian thought, we can look at the different elements of it and how they reinforce each other. The notion of individual rights. Robert Nozick opened his book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Individuals have rights, and there are some things one may not do to them without violating those rights. Spontaneous order. The counterintuitive idea that order may not be, or rather, is not always, the product of a conscious human design. Now, we can look at the ordering of the chairs here, for example. Someone did consciously place those chairs so they would produce a certain order. The architect and then the workers who came in and put them there. That order is the result of conscious planning and design. And that's how we normally think of order. But most of the order we experience in our lives, the way that we can anticipate the behavior of other people and coordinate our behavior together, isn't like that. No one sat down and designed how all the uh, foodstuffs would be delivered to a city. The fundamental question that used to be put in economics, how is Paris fed? How does it come to be that all that food goes to Paris? Or go to a grocery store and ask, why is there all this food stuff there that I want? It wasn't because there's a ministry of grocery stores or a star. It was because of the spontaneous order of the market economy. And then finally, what makes that possible is constitutionally limited government, or at least some system of legal order on which people can rely. Now, imagine that you had a chair. Oops. Um, one leg, it'll fall over. Two, marginally more stable. Three, each one will reinforce the other. Individual rights the fundamental principle of libertarian ideas. Every single human being has the right to govern his or her own life. When those rights are well respected, when they're well defined and secure, people can create forms of social order much more complex and much more harmonious than any dictator, any Fuhrer, any emperor, any king or president could have even imagined. But what is necessary for that is a system of law that gives us the security, the knowledge, on the basis of which we can interact. Now let's start with this idea of individual rights. It has very deep and ancient roots. Marcus Tullius Cicero put it very neatly when he talked about the fundamental law of nature. We are all constrained by one and the same law of nature. This is an idea that goes back even deeper in classical civilization. There's not Persian fire and Greek fire, as Aristotle pointed out. Fire does not burn one way in Persia and another way in Greece, although the Greeks saw a big divide between them and others. There is one nature, and there is one human nature as well. It is an accidental feature of the human being, whether he or she is pale or dark, as Aristotle points out. Those are accidental features. What is an essential characteristic of a human being is to be a, a rational animal. It's a little difficult to translate into English the concept of logos, but the animal who can speak, who can give accounts to each other, who can communicate with reason. And as Cicero points out, if that is true, we are certainly forbidden by the law of nature from acting violently against another person. And Cicero's ideas were very important in the formation of libertarian thought for interesting historical reasons. He wrote such beautiful Latin, his works were copied and copied and copied and copied and made it to the modern age by this accident. Many of the other texts of the ancient world were lost. But this is not merely a Euro European or somehow Western idea. If you go to the great Taoist texts, notably uh, Lao Tzu, Master Lao, the great philosopher, who articulates this idea of Wu Wei very elegantly. The more prohibitions there are, 
the poorer the people will be. He understood the difference between law and prohibitions or orders. The more edicts are promulgated, that is to say commands or ordered, the more thieves and bandits there will be. Therefore, a sage, wise person, has said, so long as I do nothing, this concept of wu wei, kind of active inactivity, doesn't mean literally do nothing, it means establish the fundamental framework of the rule of law, and then stand back and let people create their own order. So long as I wu wei, the people will of themselves be transformed. So long as I love quietness, meaning the sage or the ruler, the people will of themselves go straight. So long as I act only by inactivity, that is to say not trying to direct people, but just establishing the framework of laws and rights, the people will of themselves become prosperous. So this is not a uniquely Western idea by any means. What makes libertarians unique, however, is focusing on principles, institutions, and processes rather than wishful thinking or magical fantasies, which in my opinion characterize other political views to a very large degree. Many people think you can just choose outcomes. Let's go vote. We're going to vote for prosperity and equality. But you don't actually get to make that choice. If you choose between an apple and an orange, you can choose the outcome. You get the orange. But something like prosperity, what you really get to choose is a principle or a rule or a process. And you hope that will result in prosperity or peace or social harmony. But you can't just choose harmony. You can choose processes that will be more or less likely to produce harmony. And libertarians have focused their energy, their intellect, on saying what are the processes that produce the outcomes that, in fact, most people want. Great thinker Frederick Bastiat, if you have not read Frederick Bastiat, your life is not yet complete. Uh, you must read Frederick Bastiat. He's my favorite writer. Uh, I have dedicated uh, my life to bringing Bastiat into every literary language on the planet. So every language of which there is uh, a book publishing industry, I want Bastiat in that language. And so far, uh, we have Kurdish and Arabic and Persian and Nepali, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Georgian, and many others. Uh, but we have another hundred or so to go. As he pointed out, the difference between a bad economist and a good one is that a bad economist confines himself to the visible effects, and the good economist takes into effect, account both the effect can, that can be seen and those that must be foreseen. We have to reason what processes will produce the outcomes that we want, and that engages the mind. It's a more difficult thing than just saying vote for harmony, vote for, for prosperity, vote for me and I'll give you harmony and prosperity. Generally that doesn't work. You have to vote for principles and rules. And in particular, incentives. Institutions shape incentives and incentives shape our behavior. Douglas North has focused our attention economic science on these questions. But in fact, it's more general, as he would readily admit. We find institutions and incentives in all kinds of human interaction. And we should try to ask what institutions will produce, what kind of incentives that will produce the behavior that we think is more appropriate. When doing so, we have to remember now Hayek's insight. Not his key insight, but one of his important insights which is the knowledge that people have is dispersed. Nobody has sufficient knowledge to make those decisions about how resources should be allocated, about how people should behave in particular instances. It's in all of your minds dispersed. The information that you have is not available to me. Were you to make me your king, your dictator, your living God? I could go on, that sounds nice. <laughs> I would still not have enough information to be able to generate the social order that would be possible in a system of rule of law and decentralized authority and decision making. No human being can have that information. So the question is, what institutions will induce people to share information that will be useful to others and will enable them to engage in social cooperation? And Hayek pointed out 
that one of the fundamental institutions that makes that possible is the market economy based on well-defined property rights and prices, which provide signals for people to guide their behavior. So a little bit of economics of property rights, not just because I'm only concerned about economic outcomes. These are true of all kinds of social interactions. We need property rights to create incentives for cooperation, for wealth creation, for social development. And there are three criteria that they have to fulfill, the three Ds in English. Definable, so I know what's yours and what's mine. and We can avoid conflict as a consequence. That's fairly obvious. But go to poor countries around the world, the first thing you'll find is property rights are not well defined, even starting with just land. People don't know what belongs to other people, and they invest huge amounts of resources in fighting over it, rather than producing wealth and cooperating. Defendable. You should be able to defend your property claims. The government, but also think about other ways we defend our rights. We put locks on things. We have ignition keys in automobiles. These are investments in defending our rights. I have a key to my car. No one else has that key to that car. Right? But you could, uh, you could get rid of that. That actually costs hundreds of dollars, as I discovered when I lost my key. Uh, they're very expensive. Uh, that's a very expensive part of my car. And I do it because I know there are thieves who will steal my car. I was once in one country where they didn't use ignition keys. It was in Switzerland, in Ticino. People drove their motorbikes into the village, went around, had espresso, flirted, and so on. And then they got on their motorbikes, and all they had was an on and off button. It was really remarkable. It told me there are no thieves in Ticino. Something very bad happened to them a long time ago, I presume. And so they don't waste the resource in ignition keys. But don't do this in Washington. Just in case you're curious, it's not applicable here. And finably, divestable, which is an old-fashioned word in English. I divest myself of something. It means transferable. But as you'll notice, we couldn't have DDT. That's illegal. <laughs> so we have to use DDD for divestable. The legal system should make it possible for people to transact at relatively low cost. Now, these are two more areas of systematic state failure all around the world where governments do not defend property rights and are often the most aggressive predatory thieves stealing from people. All the statements you've heard about being the tall poppy in the field, that's the one that gets clipped off by the kleptocrats who run the state. And they do not create legal systems that have low cost access. The legal system is only for the privileged and the elites and not for the rest of the population who, as a consequence, suffer in poverty. Now, we can look at the question, uh, where does prosperity come from? Many people have the view inculcated by American high schools and colleges that somehow the natural condition of humanity is prosperity. That is not true, and it is important to understand the way in which the modern world differs from all others. Angus Madison, the late Danish statistician, put the data together rather neatly, measuring per capita income around the world from the year one up until the present. And you'll notice it's a big flat line. I could go and notice there are a few little bumps. The high Middle Ages, the period of urbanization in Europe and the Southern Sung Dynasty in China, you see an increase in per capita income. It falls during the general crisis of the 17th century as Europe and much of Asia are engulfed in uh, terrible wars. And then around the year 1800, a little bit before, in the North American British colonies and in the United Kingdom, it does that. That is what needs to be explained. What made that possible? What change brought that about? Our lives are totally different from the lives of previous generations of human beings, which most academics and intellectuals cannot understand for a very simple reason. Our window on the past is through the lens provided by other intellectuals, which means the wealthiest people in their society who had the leisure to write books. Read the dialogues of Plato about the Greeks. This is what my conservative friends always talk about. Oh, the Greeks, by which they actually mean one Greek, Plato. 
it somehow becomes plural. Uh, the Greeks thought this and that. And you would think that, that all they did was go to dinner parties all the time. And that's what they do. They're dinner parties and having discussions. Oh, you must come to Kephalus's house and have a dinner party. Uh, and then they talk about the beautiful and the good and the true and the noble. Uh, so that's how the Greeks lived. No, it isn't how the Greeks lived. It's how a tiny, 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 tiny minority of persons lived. The majority of people at that time in Athens, the freest society in that part of the world at that time, the overwhelming majority were slaves, subject to being murdered by their owners, toiling in the hot sun to labor for the benefit of other people. That's what life was like for everyone else. But we would not get that impression reading the Greeks that their lives were miserable, with no freedom, no justice, no dignity, short, miserable lives. That is the fate of the bulk of humanity up until the modern day. So what made that possible? What accounts for that? Suddenly apples were bigger on the trees, the fish leapt into the nets, nature became more bountiful. Uh, that's not the case people started to behave differently. They subjected themselves to certain kinds of rules. They began to respect the freedom of the private sector entrepreneurs, the mere merchant, the business person, the tradesman who had been looked down on for thousands of years as somehow dirty. For the first time in human history came to acquire respect. Joseph Schumpeter put it neatly, he said that for the first time, the world had seen a business-respecting civilization. That is to say that people who produced wealth were respected for it. Not only warriors and priests, but also people who worked, labored, and produced value. Now, you think about work. This is something relevant to understanding Washington. Stimulus programs, job creation programs. The point of work is not just to be busy or fudge the unemployment statistics. It's to add value to the world. And value is measured on the market. Milton Friedman put the story very neatly when he was in Asia many years ago. He was taken to an irrigation project. They showed all the dams and the earth being moved. And he, he asked the question, he said, oh, I'm curious why you don't have any earth moving equipment here. Ah, Professor Friedman, you have misunderstood. This is a job creation project. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were trying to build a canal. Now I have a different question. Why have you not issued them with spoons rather than shovels? The point is to create work. You can create a lot more work by giving them spoons rather than shovels. That showed this is a total misunderstanding of what economic behavior is about. It's about adding value to the world. Now let me look at a little bit of data, and I'll run through this quickly about the impact of economic freedom around the world. Our colleagues at the Fraser Institute in Canada uh, produced the uh, Economic Freedom of the World Report. All the data are available at freetheworld.com. It's a great project. You can download it. You can run regressions on it. You can bring in other data sets. It's a really very exciting open source project. And they measure countries by degree of economic freedom. The Cato Institute, by the way, is the partner in the United States in producing this document. Uh, with about 90 other think tanks in the world. And they found there's a pretty robust correlation between economic freedom, the rule of law, an accountable legal system, economic freedom generally, and per capita income. Now you might think, well, correlation and causation are two different things. Maybe countries become really rich and then say, hey, let's have some economic freedom. But that doesn't happen. That's actually very easy to test for. Poor countries adopt good policies of economic freedom and become wealthy. We can look at foreign direct investment, uh, very robustly correlated. People don't invest in places and create productive labor and increase the standard of living where they fear confiscation, lack of rule of law, lack of transparent, accountable government, and so on. It doesn't happen. But they do in countries that have those institutions. So in fact, it's not the case, contrary to what the anti-globalization movement would tell you, that somehow wealthy foreign investors look for low-wage countries to invest in so they can exploit people. Those people would love for that to happen, but it doesn't. 
almost all the FDI around the world goes to high-wage, prosperous countries because they're secured by the rule of law. Some people say that economic freedom leads to more inequality. And they did a very interesting study. This has been a robust outcome. They looked at the income, total share of national income received by the poorest 10% of the population. And it seems to be invariant to economic policy. That's a bit of a surprise. It was a very interesting outcome. It's about 2.5%. Doesn't seem to vary in any uh, statistically significant or meaningful way. So in other words, the poorest 10% get about 2.5% of total national income, whether it's a very free or a very unfree country. But what does not vary is the income. In other words, to put it bluntly, if you're going to be a poor person, it's much better to be poor in Switzerland than Swaziland. And just to make it very clear, to be in that poorest 10% in Switzerland, you don't have a new iPad, you don't have a lot of other stuff your other friends want, but frankly, it's not that bad. To be in the poorest 10% in Burkina Faso or Swaziland is a life of misery, suffering, disease. If you have children, the majority of them will not survive. That's what that life is like. So being poor in a wealthy country, not very nice. Being poor in a really poor country is unimaginably miserable. Life expectancy. We have 20 additional years as a gift of liberty. Less corruption. When you give people fewer arbitrary powers over other people, you give them less opportunity to shake them down for money. That's something that's fairly obvious and intuitive. And the bureaucrats cannot say, I have the power to deny it to you. They have less opportunity to demand something from you, to make them happy, bakshish, as they say. Political rights and civil liberties. Also, this is a package. They go along with economic freedoms as well. You don't have to just choose one or the other. Now, there are some interesting statistical outliers uh, in these cases. For instance, we think about uh, Singapore. Uh, does very well in economic freedom. I wouldn't call it really a free society. Not a totalitarian nightmare, but uh, it's not a free country. It's been aptly described as Disneyland plus the death penalty. Uh, but it's a, it's a statistical outlier. If you look at the vast bulk of cases, there's very clear connection between a free market economy and the enjoyment of civil and political rights and liberties. And they seem to be mutually entailing. Some countries develop more democratic system and then move towards more free market. Others more free market. And then that creates incentives for more opening of the political system. And then finally, peace that I mentioned. As you're probably well aware in political science literature, there's been for some decades a thesis called the democratic peace. Democracies tend not to wage war on each other. Political scientists for decades have just discussed, well, is this country really democracy or not? But in the bulk, it's a very robust thesis. Democracies do wage war on non-democracies or with non-democracies, and non-democracies wage war with each other regularly. But democratic countries do not, in general, go to war with each other. Eric Gardsky from Columbia University was interested in this because he saw, well, there's a strong correlation between democratic accountable government and free markets. So what is doing the work here? And he tried statistically to disaggregate them based on the largest data set ever assembled on military conflict and other variables. And he found a very robust negative correlation between the degree of economic freedom countries enjoyed and their engagement in military conflict. Even the confidence intervals are negatively sloped. Then disaggregating, looking at just the democratic component, which is the one that had been focused on until that time, he found also a negative correlation, but not very robust, and confidential intervals even diverge. He suggests that the lesson from this is what's doing the work here is not merely whether the country has got democratic governance or the right of people to influence their government, but the fact that they can freely trade with one another, which creates relationships of mutual interdependence among persons. That seems to be doing the heavy, heavy work. Now, what I spend most of my time outside in the United States, it's a little bit unusual for me to be uh, in Washington. This is Washington. Yes, to be in Washington. Uh, this is a very much a worldwide uh, movement. We have colleagues all around the world struggling for these 
ideas. And it's not just a defensive Western idea. This is something that needs to be understood. I'm sometimes asked, are you here to defend Western civilization? I said, no. Western civilization includes a lot of things. It includes slavery, includes socialism, includes communism. Karl Marx was not Chinese. He was German. It includes fascism. Benito Mussolini was not Algerian. He was Italian. These are European Western ideas as well. There are a lot of vicious things in Western history and civilization. Every culture has two narratives. There's a narrative of toleration and rights and justice. There's also a narrative of slavery and domination, war and fascism. These are not uh, exclusive to any civilization or culture. All societies contain with themselves these two narratives, one of freedom and rights, and the other of domination, violence, and coercion. And the first written word for liberty is not Western. It comes the word omaji, which was found in the late 19th century in a tablet from the city of Lagash, which is Tello in contemporary Iraq. And uh, before I had a tattoo made of this many years ago, I did check with the leading department of Sumerology at the Utsvash Loran University, Turamanyajitam in Budapest, to make sure this really did mean liberty. They said, yes, it means liberty as a modern libertarian would understand the term, because I did not want to tattoo something that would be embarrassing on my body. <laughs> with these teenagers who accidentally tattooed Chinese words backwards or something on them. Uh, but it's an ancient concept, the idea of being your own person. Uh, and finally, libertarianism is the only political theory that supports equal freedom for everybody. It says every human being, every human life is precious. Everybody matters. And everybody has rights. Joaquim Nabucco is a great hero of mine, a Brazilian abolitionist. He's dedicated his whole life to abolishing the wicked institution of slavery. And he put it very nicely in his book on abolitionism. Educate your children, educate yourselves in the love for the freedom of others. For only in this way will your own freedom not be a gratuitous gift from fate. You will be aware of its worth and will have the courage to defend it. That, I think, is a fundamental principle of libertarianism. It's a life project. Young group of people here, I can give you a little bit of older advice. As you go through life, you'll come up with all kinds of commitments and projects. Career, you'll fall in love, you'll have a family, you'll have children, you'll be disappointed like all parents. You'll <laughs> have artistic ambitions, you may be involved in scholarly or, or, or sports or other kinds of activities. Among all those commitments that you acquire as you grow as a person and experience life, I would like to encourage you to keep one, that's not the only one but one that will accompany you through your entire life, and that is a commitment to liberty. With that, I thank you very much for your attention.